There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to let slip the dogs of war on our favorite history. The podcast where truth rides in in the nick of time to swing the odds decidedly in our favor. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my loyal co-host, and not so much Harlem Hellfighter as Hanley Hellfighter, Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. I'm sure that'll be very witty for both listeners who know where Hanley is. Yes, and, and if they've any sense, they've never been there. Mm. Well, this week, dear ragers, we are getting a little bit more modern as we storm into the latter years of the Great War. Joining us this week to snatch victory from the jaws of, well, potentially a slower and less decisive victory, we welcome World War I historian, writer and art historian, Madeline Johnson. Madeline, welcome to History Rage. Hello, Paul. Hello, Kyle. I'm very excited to be here. Feeling angry? You know, I think half of anger, at least for me, is feeling that you're not being heard. And now that I'm feeling heard here, my anger has really, really knocked off. So it's more like exasperation or sort of history. Come on, guys, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, rather than you know, straight outrage. So. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode one of History Despair. <laughs> Exasperation. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Now, you came to be here courtesy of partly a well-detailed, credentialed and polite request to take part in the show. <laughs> Yes. And part absolute begging letter that did my ego the world of good. So, uh, thank you very much for that. It did, as I recall, start, please, 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 please let me come onto <laughs> exactly. your show. Yeah, yes. I felt really good, you know, for a nearly 50-year-old podcaster. This is, uh, this is quite the ego boost. Um, but oh, you, you state your main focus is art history, but you're not here to talk art. Yeah. How did you come about this particular field, or should I say trench, that we are going to talk about today? Well, I studied art history because in university, I took a history course with somebody super famous whose name I can't remember now. And it was so hideous that I just completely left history altogether and then ended up in art history. So I don't consider myself an art history person for, for you know, love or passion. I just, it was sort of a despair again, I guess. <laughs> But I came to this because I have a great uncle and I'd grown up hearing that he he died in 1920 and I'd heard that he had shot himself in France and it had something to do with prostitutes and a hotel. And that... If ever there was a springboard to get into the First World War, that did yes. catch me from left field, I have to say. Exactly. So I found it, as one does cleaning out your mother's house, I found his letters, which dated from when he was six years old up until a couple days before he did actually kill himself. And so I started finding about, out about World War I. I went to find out what happened to him and what the story was. And it was partly true and partly not. And it was horrible and sad. And it was probably, there were prostitutes. It wasn't really a hotel. Um, it probably had more to do with pe 
PTSD than anything else. Mm. Um, anyway, so as I would tell people about this, particularly in America, they'd say things like, oh, America was in World War One," or, oh, the poor guy stuck in the trenches for all those years. <laughs> He's like, actually, actually, he was hardly ever in a trench, you know, so that sort of was what got me going and just the lack of understanding in the U.S. And then going to see the Imperial War Museum in London, where it's sort of like, oh, the Americans sent over a brigade, a brigade and yeah, you know, kind of yeah, helped. turned up in time yeah. for tea and medals. And yeah, exactly. And, and went away. Now they take all the credit for it. So that's sort of how I how I ended up here. Okay, so here we are then, and let's say you've hinted at a few areas of uh, of your age. So there's quite a catalogue of that. So let's kick in with the ultimate history rage stroke history despair question, which is, Madeline, will you please tell our parade ground of baying mob out there what you wish everyone would just stop believing? I wish everyone would just stop believing that the U.S. made no contribution to World War I or that World War I was not important for the U.S. Beautifully put. And I understand, and we'll come to this a little bit later on, but I understand that part, this, this is not just particularly aimed at British people who might be going, ah, Americans always turning up late for <laughs> no. wars, which I may hasten to add, I feel they have every right to turn up late to somebody else's war. Yeah. Thank God we do. And yeah, but there, there is quite a sizable portion of America that needs to learn this as well, isn't there? Yeah. And I, you know, after our talk, I sort of put this together more, as you said, most of your audience is British. So I'm not particularly going, you know, I can certainly talk about why America forgot or doesn't care and, and it'll become obvious as I talk about it. Uh, but Yes, no, that's that's part of it. But I'm sort of looking at it a little bit more from a, a British point of view, because I do have a particular gripe about that. Let's start off with the basics then. So for the non-First World War, non-Great War types out there, when did the United States enter the war? And well, why did they have any particular right or duty to take part in it? Well, just to go back to 1914, America was completely caught by surprise by a conflict that seemed that was really far away, had to do with alliances they didn't understand. It was seen as a mess that Europe created out of its own interests. Can't argue um, with that. It was, <laughs> it, was a, it was an old world problem. And, you know, America had at that point, 14% of America was foreign born and most of them were born in Europe. And as far as they were concerned, they left the old world, you know, they didn't want to have anything to do with that. And a lot of people felt that there was, we had no interest in supporting the British Empire on one side. And on the other side, there was just general disdain for autocracies, whether it was Germany or Russia. And then as the war progressed, America became worried that, uh, that if Germany won, then it would take over the British presence in Caribbean and it would really kind of upset the apple cart mm. in, in our neck of the woods. So when the war broke out um, in August, Woodrow Wilson, who was the president at the time, he'd been elected in 1912, declared that the U.S. would be neutral. As he said, the United States must be neutral in fact as in name. And we must curb upon our sentiments as well upon every transaction that might be construed as a preference of one party to the struggle before another. He also saw America's role. America had a role, but it was as a mediator. And as he, he said, we are a mediating nation, compounded of the nations of the world. But the, even though the U.S. was, in theory, neutral, there was still a lot going on. And by 1916, 40% of the French and British material was coming from the U.S., and as many, it's kind of hard to figure this out, but America, as many as people say, up to 60,000 U.S. citizens had joined in the war via Canada. Um, some of them were just ordinary guys who wanted to fight. And then there were a lot of other people tended to be from wealthy backgrounds who went to be ambulance drivers. Um, a lot of universities organized programs to send students over there. And then, of course, there was the Lafayette Escadrille, these well-to-do 
sort of swashbuckling American pilot. And then, of course, there were things like the Italians who went home to fight. And of course, you know, Italy was a U.S. ally. So Hmm. the U.S. was kind of into it. And even though the U.S. wanted to mediate, no one was interested in it. Wilson kept firing off these memos and Clemenceau would kind of roll his eyes and sort of say, here comes another, because he kept insisting that this was to be peace without victory. And nobody wanted that. And so the U.S. basically came in because of what Britain and Germany did. Britain basically did everything it could to bring the U.S. in. And Germany contributed to America's entry in the war because it basically did everything wrong, whether it wanted the U.S. to be on its side or to stay out. France did some lobbying and the Belgians sent a delegation to Washington that the American people found very moving and they made a huge contribution to relief. But Britain had a huge advantage in language and the culture Mm -hmm. and the relationship. So what Britain did was right off the bat, it cut off Germany's transatlantic communications cable, which allowed it to control the information coming to the U.S. It used naval power to block U.S. shipping to Germany. And it kind of interfered around the world. This this uncle of mine was a Marine in, in China, and he was constantly writing home that the British were grabbing U.S. mail and censoring. They were cutting out of newspapers that he was sent from home. They were cutting out any mention of the war. So Britain was really trying to control the narrative. And they also, Wellington House turned its beam on the U.S., on the press, and also targeted influential figures in the U.S. They sort of went through who's who and wrote letters to people like J.P. Morgan and Cornelius Vanderbilt. And it came, the British came down really, really hard on the German atrocities. As for the Germans, the ambassador to the U.S. had a very good relationship with Wilson, and Wilson actually let the Germans use the U.S. transatlantic cables for communication. Mm. And they set up a, a propaganda bureau. But the U.S. was always a little bit queasy about Germany because this autocracy, they didn't like the idea that it was you know, run by a Kaiser and that it was such a militaristic society. And he was convinced, and so he sort of put out this message that the German people were not aware of all the bad stuff that their government was getting up to. But the Germans just also kept doing like offensive stuff. They said there were spies, caught spies in the Caribbean and the mainland. And American journalists went to Europe and they said, you know, those atrocities? Yeah, they're really that bad. In fact, they're even worse. And then in 1915, the U-boat sank the Lusitania. 128 Americans died on it. And at the time, Wilson said the U.S. was too proud to fight. Germany kind of pulled back on the U-boat, the submarine warfare. But then in 1917, in January, it started up again. Mm. And the British blockade was really biting. And uh, the German ambassador in the U.S. was very worried. He thought that this there'd be backlash. And they started sinking more shipping. I can't remember how many ships you know, were, were sunk. And then, of course, the final straw was in January of 1917, which was the Zimmerman telegram. And this was intercepted and very kindly handed over once again by British intelligence. And that was a telegram to Mexico promising that if it joined on the German side and Germany won, then Germany would kindly give Arizona and New Mexico back to them. This was obviously too much. And on April 16th, 1917, Wilson declares war. And of course, it's voted on in Congress. 32 congressmen dissented, did not go for it. And then on June 1917, the U.S. sends its first troops in, and October, the first U.S. troops go into combat. Yeah, you say, you mentioned there that it was very kindly handed over to the Americans by <laughs> British intelligence, but it was one to suggest that they've got somewhat of a motive there. Wasn't it? Exactly. I think they were like, oh my God, we've got them now. You know, we, we can, we, yeah, come on, Wilson, back, back out of this one. Exactly. You can't. This you can't put up with. So, um, and it reflected America's fears that that Germany would intervene in the Caribbean, and if you know, if if 
Britain lost here, you know, they get the British colonies or the British influence in the Caribbean. Okay, so from the from this kind of breakout of war up to America going into the war in 1917, what was the view of the American people about the war? And particularly, America is always that massive collection of really, really different ethnic groups. Of course. And always has course. been. And if you've got a world war, that's going to have an impact. So, so yeah, what can, what can you tell us of, sort of struggles to bring America in, keep America out in terms of getting public opinion behind it? Well, so first of all, just sort of America's view of itself, it, America didn't see itself as a world power. I mean, it, it had, in 1916 was the first year that economically it was the biggest economy in the world. So as I say, it wasn't looking at itself that way. It didn't have the sense that we have now thanks to World War I, that what happens in the rest of the world is something that we have to, to take into account. As you say, the huge immigrant population was 14.7%. The biggest group of that was actually people from the British Isles, which, of course, includes Ireland. Mm. After that, then the next biggest group was Germany, which was 10%, and then Austro-Hungary and Russia. So... The U.S. also wasn't that interested in other stuff going on. In 1916 to 1917, U.S. troops were in Texas because the Mexican Revolution had sort of spilled over into our borders. And so they sent a raid to capture Pancho Villa. Uh, there was an elect uh, also an expeditionary force of Marines was in Haiti in 1915, defending American interests there. So that was sort of what America was looking at. And there was also what's, you know, the Monroe Doctrine, the sense that what goes on in the Western Hemisphere is a U.S. problem. And then there was also a presidential election in 1916. Hmm. So, and the war was a huge issue on in that. That was what probably the biggest campaign issue. Wilson ran on keeping the U.S. out, but he won by, a, a you know, a very small majority. And the U.S. was, the war was good for U.S. business. There had been a depression in 1913 and 1914. So, you know, America was kind of getting the benefits of the war. As I said, all this material was being purchased here, but we didn't have to, you know, put up with the bad stuff. The military was following it very closely. The Marines sent observers over. There were medical observers studying shell shock. But and there was a huge group of people, a very powerful and vocal group of people who thought that the, U the U.S. should join and defend its friends and, as they put it, take up its responsibility. Wilson's closest advisors were very pro-British. The Anglophile, America's sort of Anglophile elite, let's say, call it the East Coast establishment, the, you know, cosmopolitan, mm -hmm. well-to-do. You know, these were people who went to Europe. They're they're you know, Edith Wharton, the, the author, you know, she lived in France and was, you know, helping, helping the French people. So they, they were horrified. And this was also, as they say, Anglophile, they also saw the American position in the world on a more sort of geopolitical basis. As I say, people felt that the U.S. should be now taking its responsibility. And my my uncle, this great uncle, wrote home to his family that says America needs to be a man and sort of stand up for, you know, for its responsibility for for other, you know, for other mm. rights. And it was sort of considered a matter of time before the U.S. that there was the preparedness movement, which was, again, a sort of white upper class movement. Size of the army was raised in 1916. And this preparedness movement set up these camps um, for reserve training, you know, officers. Mm -hmm. Again, these were white. You couldn't go to one if you were working class. It was only for professionals. And my uncle Carl referred them as tin pot schemes to make soldiers. Now, then you had the people who were not for the war. And the U.S. Wilson Secretary of State was against it. He felt that America's role, again, was to be neutral, to, to sort of preside over these things and, you know, keep these squabbling Europeans from wrecking it. Um, there were also, on the other hand, extremely prom prominent citizens. Henry Ford, 
some suffragettes, some well-known socialites and academics who were pacifists, sort of as a general principle, went on a mission, I think, in 1916 to, to, to Norway to try and patch things up. Didn't go very well. America's trade unions and social democrats were against it as well. Saw the whole thing as, you know, capitalists squabbling over capitalist kinds of things. Mm. Now, to the ethnic groups, there was a lot of suspicion of these so-called hyphenated Americans. Of the the 14% who were born abroad, 4.5 of these were from enemy countries, and among these Another 3% were of military age. They didn't, they didn't cause trouble, even though there were huge areas of the U.S., particularly the Midwest and certain areas of New York that were German, very heavily German. There were German newspapers. There were, you know, German neighborhoods found themselves as American. A lot of them had come, particularly in the Midwest. They, a lot of these people had escaped or had come in 1848. They'd left Germany for some of the same reasons that that Germany was fighting. The Irish were not big fans of the British. Mm -hmm. The Jews were not big fans of the Russians. Again, a lot of them had left because of the Tsarist pogroms. And they were, but they were also uh, supporters of Austria. Austria had been pretty hospitable to Jews relative to, you know, to other European countries. Italians, as I said, were allies and had gone back to fight. And so that left the the British were pretty much for it. These immigrants would fight well. They got citizenship. And for many, it would be a really big leg up in American society. Because aside from the citizenship, um, a lot of them learned English mm. in the army. So, so once the country was in, as you say, Wilson had to sell it. To, to the country. I mean, he'd run in 1916 on, on, you know, he kept us out of the war was his, basically his campaign slogan. So he pitched it as making the world safer democracy. This was a fight against old world autocracy. He was very careful to frame it as not a war against the German people. This mm. was a war against their government. It was sort of almost presented as almost regime change. Then they also did some other stuff that just was not terribly benign. There was a massive suppression of civil rights, uh, the so-called Sedition Act and the Espionage Act. And he set up a propaganda organization that was called the Committee on Public Information. And among the various things they did besides, you know, working closely with journalists and sort of make up press releases and talking point was that he set up this organization called the Four Minute Men. And these were to be sort of prominent people in communities and they would go to cinemas and in the four minutes that it would take to change a reel. They would give a speech about why the U.S. should be in the war, what our contribution was, and and please buy war bonds. Okay. So that was that was what was done. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, if I could just throw in a, another question here, because you mentioned there about selling it to the, to the American people. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got to sell it to Congress, but if you want them to actually right. go over there, you've still got to have the American pe public think right. it's a reasonably good idea. Now, I could be wrong here, and uh, if I am, 
I'm totally taking this bit out. But if you look at the sort of time period, 1914-1916, if you were to really look at the last time that the world had seen an absolutely industrial total war, it's the American Civil War, isn't it? Absolutely. And so though those people that are going to get shipped off to France, I mean, they're probably not going to have fought the Civil War themselves, but they're going to have fathers, uncles, etc. There's going to be that family link there. How do you go about getting... Because if I take, I think it's the Battle of Fredericksburg, there's 8,000 Americans killed in 20 minutes. It's How do you get the people to just go and do that again? It's staggering. I don't have a really, you know, I don't have an on-point answer of, you know, yes, they, you know, they said this or they said that. I think one way they may have done it is that, uh, we'll talk about, I was going to talk about it a little bit later, I can talk about it now, was that the U.S. didn't have a standing army. That was sort of against our principles. That was something, you know, European countries and kings did. But so what what happened was that states had militias. So they had their own, you know, their own organization. So what happened was they created an, what was called the National Guard and they brought in all these militias and put them together and, and made divisions out of them. So, for example... You have the, the, the 26th division, the Yankee division. That was the, the National Guard or whatever, the state guards of Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. And so probably that helped. People came in sort of for their, you know, as part of their, as part of Mm. their state. And it is kind of interesting. A lot of people, a lot of diaries and and letters will write home and they'll comment. I've seen this more than once. They'll comment on the fact exactly that, that their fathers were fighting each other. And they'll say, isn't it wonderful that the blue and the gray can sit down together and fight together? So you're right. It was absolutely in, in people's memories. So once the United States is in the war, where do American soldiers, American servicemen actually see action? They see action on the Western Front. They see action in Italy and they see action in Russia and Siberia later on in the war. Now, (laughs) you want to know more about how that happened or whatever? Go for it. Okay. Because I, I, as, as we talked about this, I started to talk, I, sort of talked about how it happened because, and I think this happened, the reason I wanted to talk about it this way is because I think it explains a little bit about why the U.S. contribution is, you know, is forgotten or sort of belittled by the, in, in Europe. And the problem is that the U.S., as I said, didn't have an army. It had 120,000, 120,000 men in it. And so that was the first thing that we had to do was cobble them together. As I said, we put these divisions together. When the U.S. gets to France, the French were really, really excited. You know, they had parades and Pershing and Lafayette, you know, New Somme-Zissi and were coming back. But there was a big fight um, because the British and the French thought we were just the Americans were just going to send men over there and they could just help themselves to them and do whatever they wanted. But the Wilson said that he had promised the Americans that that the U.S. troops would fight by themselves, um, would, you know, would fight autonomously under their own leaders. And there are various reasons for that, one of which is he thought that the, the idea that there were these fresh troops and a sort of a fresh presence on the front would make a difference rather than just, you know, sort of throwing men into the to the old, mm-hmm. you know, keep keep doing the same thing. So he had a difficult relationship, even though uh, Haig thought he looked like a general. <laughs> they, as I say, there were there were sort of massive di- disagreements about this. And Pershing at one point stomps out and tells the French and the British, well, you know, if the Germans pushed you into the sea, we could handle this by ourselves anyway. <laughs> there must have been a lot of, of eye rolling. And the the French and the British, insisted, rightly so, on what well, Americans accepted up to a point that th- they needed training from from the British and the French. We didn't have an army. Nobody fought since you know, 1865 and knew what to do. And there was a huge misunderstanding. Pershing didn't Pershing didn't want the U.S. doing trench warfare. 
he thought that was European, unmanly to be under the ground like that. And his view of it was a lot like uh, the the view that you had on the, you know, the other day when whatever it was, you had the the rage about trench warfare. That was kind yeah, of his Hill's view. Rage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that, that's the way he, he envisioned it. He kept saying Americans do open warfare, like, you know, like the men at Concord and Lexington. And he'd say these, whatever you'd call them, delirious things like there's no finer weapon than the American and his rifle. <laughs> Just like, great, on the Western front. Of course, the British and French response was, well, if we don't teach the Americans how to fight, the Germans will. So the big thing that the American arrival did was that in the spring of 1918, the Germans said, oh, my God, (laughs) the Americans are coming. We better do something about this. And that was Ludendorff's roll of the dice, Mm. the spring offenses. They the Germans knew or felt that they had a window that they could. This was their last chance. And. That's what they did. So as we all know, in, in March and April, I think it was April 8th, April 4th or whatever, was our backs against the wall. And at that point in May of 1917, sorry, May of 1918, the, you know, the Germans are 50 miles from Paris. The French are ret- literally, you know, literally running back, yelling, retreat, retreat. And then... Pershing says, okay, fine. You can have our, you know, you, you can have our troops fosh, you know, do it, do what you want. And so they throw the first and second and third divisions literally like on trucks and send them to north of France to Chateau Thierry. And that is where the Americans, the U.S. Marines, the second division stopped the Germans. So that's where the where the Americans really start this this north of of Chateau Thierry and this again I was, I want to talk about a little bit about this 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 battle Bellow Wood which is it's the only battle that Americans ever heard of it by First World War standards it's ridiculously small but it was a big deal it was the Marines it's sort of the founding myth of the Marines it lasted for thirty five days of combat and there are these you know famous sayings the french are retreating and they're yelling at the americans retreat retreat you know as the marines are getting off the truck and the some marine says you know retreat hell we just got here and so the so you say the british sort of look at this as like a small little thing in some british books it's called just a psychological victory the French didn't feel that way. The French were really, really excited. They brought the Marines and the second division to Paris for a parade. And the Germans were now seriously worried. I have intelligence reports that were my great uncles where the, the Germans say they, these people are crazy. They shoot everything that moves. And they also say the U.S. is fighting like it's 1914. So. This was, as I say, it might have been a psychological victory, but if the French and the Germans, if it really affected them, that 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 pretty important. Yeah, that, so, that's quite psychological, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty psychological. If the Germans go like, "Oh no," and and literally, that was the closest the Germans ever got to Paris. That really did. That really did stop the whole thing. Yeah, you have to think uh, as well. Thinking psychologically, the Germans, they go from like, thank Christ, the Russians have left to, oh God, in the space the of like Americans a matter of weeks, isn't it? You know? Yeah. And, you know, the, the American troops were, of course, extremely in- inexperienced, but everybody noticed that they were just big, bi- you know, big guys and blood, like, raring to go you know too too excited i mean this was was always a problem that the americans tended to be sort of rash about stuff and so then after that with the second battle of the marne the americans still stay with uh under french control and in july 18th at the what we call soissons um that when the the big offensive uh, mm-hmm. against going back i guess whatever against the the germans the Americans were fighting. The Mer- Americans' first and second divisions were were interspersed with British and French and Moroccan troops. After that, 
the Americans got a little their little special sector. Finally, they got to sort of do something on their own. And that was a salient at San Miel, which was over towards Lorraine. And that was a sort of staged operation. It was very successful. It was my great uncle, who was a Marine and who probably saw the worst of everything, described it as a cakewalk. Um, and that was September. Then on September 26th, which was basically barely two weeks later, all these men from Samuel were turned around, sent north towards Sedan. And so that was the American, that was the American sector on the big push in the, the hundred days. This was a huge logistical feat, um, getting all these men over there. And the person who made it happen was our old friend, George C. Marshall. So we call this the Battle of the Mozargon. It was, there were 1.2 million American troops there. It was the largest ever battle in American history. There were probably more mules killed there than men on Omaha Beach. And uh, 26,000 26, men died there. And there were also some, some people that, whose names you'll recognize. You said George Marshall. Mm -hmm. The commander of the 1st Tank Brigade was George Patton. Brigadier General in the 42nd Division, Douglas MacArthur. A gunnery captain was Harry Truman and uh, William O'Donovan, who then went on to uh, found the, the OSS, was a first lieutenant. So that was, and that, that's where we were. It was from September 26th to November 1918 to, to the 11th. That's where the U.S. was. And then several divisions were sent to Germany for the occupation. The, the Americans had a sector just south of the British occupation sector. Yeah, so that was that was sort of where we were. The the you know, there was one of the the sort of statistics about this is that the US lost more men per day than any of the other combatants, which says two things. One, we were only in the war for eighteen months or nineteen months, and just the lack of experience. Um and the fact that the US in the the this Mozargon had a really difficult sector of terrain you know the the unlike that round um the battle of the marne where everybody was now out of the trenches and you know running across the the plains over there by Sedan, the germans were still in their the trenches you know they were still sitting in the hindenburg line so that was that was a job and just the terrain you know is there it's a series of ridges going back towards the Meuse. so you constantly had to attack uphill. The Germans were on top, attack uphill. The Germans would move back, you know, move the whole thing back, put the artillery on the, you know, the reverse slope and start all over again. So it was, it was bad. It was also November. The Americans didn't have the world's greatest kit, the world's greatest uniforms, and there was raging influenza. Um, mm. I was just reading something that was one of the problems was that there was a lot of the the roads were apparently chaotic and it was always criticized as this failure of logistics that there was just so much traffic and i was just reading something the other day saying well part of the traffic wasn't that americans were rushing to the rear because they were cowards people were just sick they were just yeah. you know they couldn't fight anymore so what was the overall impact of these american troops what was the what effect did America have towards the victory? Well, as I said, you know, I we were in it for about, you know, from the declaration to the end was 19 months. So unlike World War II, our contribution wasn't a huge one. Uh, it wasn't a big industrial one. I mean, that's how long it took the U.S. industrial machine. It took the U.S. basically 18 months, you know, to get the whole industrial machine going for world war for the second world war so it was a lot less that in fact the u.s was quite dependent most of our artillery was french 75 so we were actually quite dependent on the the hardware of other people and the one contribution of course was a huge one of just men you know we were in 13 separate operations 42 divisions you know as i said on three fronts and how quickly, I think another thing that's kind of important is just like how fast this ratcheted up. So in March of 1918, there were 162,000 men in combat. And in November 1918, there were almost 2 million. So 
you know, that's just a huge amount of people coming in. And I, I can't remember the figures of the numbers of people that were in the pipeline ready to come over and, the, you know, the amount of shipping. So, I mean, and people certainly thought that this war would be going on until 1920. That was kind of the way the U.S. military was looking at it. 116,000 men died. 53,000 of that was combat. That's just a lot of people. And the U.S. had, there were 2 million men in Europe in 1918. And just to give you a comparison, in 1945, there were 3 million. So that's a lot of people for that amount of time and that amount of front. I mean, when you compare what, you know, where the U.S. was in Europe and Italy, you know, just a a much more massive thing. So that kind of puts it into perspective. I said, we didn't just send a brigade. (laughs) (laughs) A whole lot of people. Another thing that was a huge effect, as I, I think I mentioned before, even up in the beginning of the war, the U.S. was supplying a huge amount of materiel. And what that meant was, you know, that was stuff, aside from the fact that whatever we earned, U.S. made money off of it. That was stuff that the French and British couldn't have produced themselves. That was mm. just in a massive reservoir of, of stuff. The Americans, U.S. spent in 19 months $22 billion compared to France that spent 23, 23, sorry, billion, $23 billion for the entire war. Britain's contributions, $38 billion for the entire war. I mean, they do the math yeah. you know, for, for the amount of time in it. And that was more than the U.S. government had spent from nineteen from seventeen ninety one to nineteen fifteen. So there's just a massive amount in general, and it's a massive, you know, it's also a massive amount for the U.S. So it was, you know, it was a sacrifice for the U.S. Whatever, this is like a big deal for the U.S. And then there were loans, four hundred billion loans to to Britain, another three hundred and fifty or forty to to France. Huge loans to uh, to Belgium, feeding mm. Belgians, feeding occupied France, and then there was also sort of like what I call like sort of weird stuff. The the, the Americans. Oh yeah, do tell. I know we sent two forestry regiments. <laughs> you know, you don't really think about it. There was a lot of wood involved yeah. in it, and the U.S. sent the forestry engineers who went all over France and found wood for duck boards and. And, yeah, you know, yeah. There's a lot of woodwork thing. in trenches. There's a lot of wood. A lot of forests had been destroyed. The U.S. sent 1,697 locomotives, which were I think it's fascinating. They were loaded on ore boats, which had massive hatches on their tracks, so they could lift them up with the track and connect them and just roll them right off these ships. It was a huge boost to the economy, uh, the local economy of France, and there's. There are sections of France whose modern infrastructure is thanks to the U.S. Army. I mean, I, I visited a place in, in near the Vosges where my great uncle was stationed at the very beginning for the training. And their electric system, their sewer system were put in by the U.S. Army engineers. Uh, there was sort of a whole section of town, with little streets laid out, a new section of town that was all courtesy of the American engineers. The American mule was highly praised by the British military. Again, you know, something that made a big difference uh, when people were running out of horses. Well, there were also a huge amount of American war horses that, again, were mm-hmm. also highly praised. And I think, you know, the morale was a big, it was a big thing. The Germans knew that they just couldn't do it. And as soon as that became clear, you know, as I said before, at the beginning, Wilson was saying peace without victory and nobody would talk to him. And, you know, by October of 1918, the Americans have effectively been fighting since June. The the Germans are starting to put out these feelers. And Churchill said this wonderful thing. I mean, it's sort of cute the way he looks at these Americans. He He says the impression made upon the hard pressed French by this seemingly inexhaustible flood of gleaming youth in its first maturity of health and vigor was prodigious. Crammed in their lorries, they clattered along the roads, singing the songs of the new world at the tops of the air voices, burning to reach the bloody field. 
the French headquarters were thrilled. So, and then of course, there was the difference that America made at the end of the war, which was another reason that Wilson wanted the U.S. to to be fighting separately. He wanted a place at the big table. Mm -hmm. He had a very clear vision of what the post-war world was like. And, you know, we're still we're still with that today. The, the idea of the sort of the negotiated peace settlement, the the framework for talking about the end of the world, the support, the U.S. support of for self-determination had a huge influence on on colonial, you know, anti-colonial movements around the world. The, the humanitarian engagement on by the U.S. of sort of the, these NGOs, some of which are still going, you know, that were started in World War One. Again, a huge part of the way we see now dealing with with international crises. I mean, just the fact that that you know we the world the the free world feels responsible for what goes on in Ukraine. I think is definitely a legacy of of not just the first world war but of of america's perhaps naive sometimes hypocritical belief in making the world safe for democracy to to round things off because you mentioned to me in our prior contact that although we've targeted this very much at british attitudes you did say that americans themselves downplay their role in the war how and why i think it's it's a lot of it's ignorance. I think a lot of it goes back to the tough sell that Wilson had to make in the beginning. This wasn't World War II with Pearl Harbor, where the country rises up and says, you know, let's go kick the asses of the Japanese and the Germans. I think that, you know, that made a difference. There was a lot of bitterness at the end of the war. You know, if, if people in Europe were saying in the 1920s, what a waste. What was all that for? Imagine what, how that felt in the U.S. where we, mm. it was much, you know, wasn't our, it wasn't our country that was destroyed where we were saying, you know, what was that for? So there was immediately a depression right after, before the Great Depression. Uh, the veterans struggled. All those things contributed to, uh, there was really a sort of concerted effort to forget it, like to just, you know, put it, put, put the war behind us and, and not talk about it in the 1920s. So that was part of it. And then stuff sort of intervened. There was, you know, a de the depression and there was a lot of bitterness, of course, in, I, you know, the bonus army and the, the depression, the veterans marched on Washington and, and set up these you know, campsites and who cleared them out, who who shot on them. Patton, MacArthur, thrown veterans. Yeah. So that created so there was sort of that, you know, kind of bad a bad taste in people's mouths. And then World War Two comes along. You know, it's a much easier story. It's you know, it's Nazis. That's you know, that that that's cool. Let's go fight Nazis. So it just made a much more coherent, easily digested story. I mean, I, I've sort of left out and, and out of this whole thing, the whole question of the Ar U.S. Army that was segregated, what that did for rela race relations and how that sort of tore up the country that made it hard for people to, to think World War I had, you know, was, a, was a great thing. So I think that that's sort of all goes together, aside from Americans, just general ignorance about about history. World War II is a story you can get behind, you know, storming mm. beaches, Normandy. Liberating the world from fascist dictators. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that that, that has a lot to do. I mean, now I'm really going to get angry because, you know, in America, this whole cult, of the greatest generation, you know, this is my, my parents, maybe your parents, um, you know, they, they survived the depression and then they had a world war. And it's like, hell, <laughs> their parents had a depression and a world war. They just, you know, came in the, you know, sort of a different order. Like why, why is the world war two generation so much more special than the, you know, than the world war one generation. Mm -hmm. So I think that that has a lot to do with it. When you think that, People now look at World War II, a lot of it is grandchildren 
or even men who had fought in the war who retired and went back and looked at it. The men who fought in World War One when they were retiring and looked back on it, it was 1945, you know, so they didn't they didn't get to tell their story either as well. Um, the way that the the veterans of World War Two then you know start mm. to be these you know these little these national tra- like I get so angry about it on um, these sort of national treasures and all this piety about about World War Two that doesn't happen with World War One. Well, thank you very much for that, Madeline. Thank you very much. That was an absolutely epic rage. Oh, I don't know whether it was. Like- and I missed one of them. I was going to have a mini rage lit in all of this, which I didn't have. Can I have my mini rage lit over one little thing? What was that? So my mini rage is, as I said, the U.S. Army was segregated. And the American, a lot of American generals, there was a horrible racism said, well, you know, the American Negro you know, doesn't have a fighting spirit. He'll cut and run. And so... They didn't want to fight with these um, African-American units. And the French said, hey, we'll take them. So there's this perception in the U.S. that the French, you know, oh, they weren't racist. You know, they took these people. The thing is that the French were racist, but in just a different way. Their view was, well, these are, you know, black Africans and they're savages. And so they'll fight, fight fiercely. It was just as racist as the as the U.S. was about it uh, we've actually got in two months time we have got chad williams coming on as part of series 11 whose rage is all about the african-american contribution to world war one so we uh, we will look forward to that so thank you very much madeline do you do you feel better now that you've got that out of your system i definitely feel as i said just just the fact that somebody heard me out already Well, if your quest is to be heard, you may well be in the wrong place, but there we go, you know. Although I don't know if we have about, you know, about 10, 11,000 downloads a month. So good. So is that enough of an audience for you? It's better than the five people who've heard it up until now. (laughs) Well, if you want to increase it, you know how to do it. Get out there and promote it. If you'd like to know more about Madeline's work, then you can start by reading any and all of the articles that Madeline has written for the American Magazine, the Financial Times, a number of other publications. And you can find these at her website, themadelinejohnson.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at Madeline Milano. And we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. So once again, Madeline, thank you very much. I hope we I hope we have sated your rage since you were so keen to get it out. Yeah, I have. And I had I just had another rage lit that I didn't get to say, but that's okay. That's always a second time. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We would really appreciate any reviews you could leave for us with Apple, Podchaser, or Amazon. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffle. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you're loving the rage, then why not subscribe to us on Patreon? Because this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the most coveted of items, the History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.